I'll tell you, there's nothing I love more. I wish we could just let you do that for the rest of the hour. Uh, you'd get tired of it, though. And, and you'd walk away disappointed that you didn't hear the message this morning. You know, our kids in Idaho have to think about school in August because they start on the 26th. And uh, they're not looking forward to that. like to talk about joy a little bit this morning. If you have your Bibles, you might want to turn to Philippians chapter 3, because that's where the Apostle Paul begins to introduce this idea uh, of the joy. And, and so um, we'd like to talk a little bit about that this morning. And, you know, when I was in the military, which was back when Moses was just a corporal, I might add, uh, we had, I, I worked for a part of the government that had installations all over the world in some strange places, like out on the Aleutian chain in Alaska and, and St. Lawrence Island off the west coast of Alaska and Nome, Alaska. And, and uh, we had places in Turkey and Greenland. And nobody wanted to go to Greenland. I remember when I was thinking, I'm going to get orders. I hope it's not Greenland. Oh, God, please don't let it be Greenland. But these guys would come back from Greenland, and they would tell us stories. And one of the stories they would always tell us is about the icebergs in Greenland. And the icebergs off the coast of Greenland have kind of a funny habit. You may have 12 icebergs in a field and six go one direction and six go precisely the opposite direction. Kind of a strange phenomena. But there's a, there's a reason for it. Some of the icebergs um, are smaller and they don't go deep into the ocean. And those icebergs move with whatever direction the wind is blowing. Uh, some icebergs are larger, and the ice goes deep into the ocean, and they are driven by ocean currents, not by the wind. The Apostle Paul talks in the Scriptures about being driven by every wind of doctrine. And one of the things that we see from what we're going to study this morning is that the deeper our roots go into God, the less apt we will be to move with the winds of doctrine, and certainly the less apt we will be to lose our joy. Have you ever seen a Christian who gets saved and they get excited and they're really interested, they're sharing Christ every place they go, and then all of a sudden, they lose that joy, and uh, uh, the joy kind of goes away, and, and they become like all the rest of us. Uh, sometimes Christians can lose their joy, and I think one of the reasons is that their roots stop. They don't keep putting 
their roots down. And as a result, Paul is going to tell us today how not to lose your joy. Joy is an important word to Paul. He starts out in this text with uh, verse 1 of chapter 3, and this is what it says. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Uh, the word rejoice is the Greek word kara. It's used 17 times in this book. It becomes the theme of the Apostle Paul for the book of Philippians. In fact, you can find commentaries on the market that are entitled just one word, joy. And it's a commentary on the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. And it is a safeguard to you. You might want to circle the word safeguard because that becomes the basis for everything we want to say this morning. The Apostle Paul is talking about safeguards. The word that Paul uses here for safeguard is a legal term in Greek. And this is the way it's used. If I have an open and closed case, if my case cannot be corrupted, if the defense attorney cannot make an etch in my case, that's what this word means. It means certainty. It means fullness. It means completeness. And the Apostle Paul is saying, here is the certain way for you not to lose your joy. So I would like to take a shot at three things that Paul says in this text. How do you not lose your joy? Three safeguards for keeping your joy. Here's the first one. Resist legalistic attitudes. Now, I don't know about you, if you've had any contact with legalism in Christianity. When I came to know the Lord, and I, I have fun with this, I came to know the Lord in what was called the GARB Church. You know what that is? General Association of Retarded Baptists. <laughs> no, no. And my pastor, Warren Burtzel, will forgive me. General Association of Regular Baptists. But the one thing that they were against was dancing. You couldn't dance. And uh, and it was very legalistic in some of those things. I don't know whether you're aware of it or not, but when legalism comes in, either to a church or a family, I might add, or a personal life, it it's, it's, it's damaging. Because legalism is not how we build a relationship with God. And that's what Paul is going to talk about. If you read verses 2 and 3, you could stamp the word legalism on those verses. So let's look at them. Paul says, beware of the dogs. Circle the word dogs. And notice that he says, the dogs. Not just any dog. At the time Paul wrote this, Dogs were not the fuzzy, furry, cuddly people that we have. Remember a month or so ago, I said I need a puppy? Well, I still need a puppy. 
and I'm still looking, but we'll we'll see how that's going to go till Carolyn lets me have one. Uh, beware of the dogs. That is a term in that culture that is extremely derogatory, demeaning. The dogs in those days were wild. They were mean. They were ugly. They would even attack people sometimes. And as a result, the Apostle Paul refers to the false teachers as dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Circle the word evil workers. These were people who would set out to uh, uh, change the word of the gospel. They would say, he calls them Judaizers in other places, they would say, listen, it's okay to trust Christ. He is the way of salvation. But you might want to put this other little thing with it, like circumcision, for example. That's why Paul follows that up with beware of the false circumcision. The word that he uses there means mutilation. Beware of these evil workers who would mutilate you and call it salvation. Now, I don't know whether you realize it or not, but here we are in August of 2014, and there are still people in our Christianity today who would like to add a little work here or there. They put nice terms on it. They call it different things, but the fact is they would like to add something that I can do to get saved. And they're all around us. So Paul says, For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory of Christ Jesus and put no, no confidence in the flesh. In other words, the salvation that we have, he is saying, is by grace plus nothing. There's nothing you can do to help yourself get saved. We must live each day by grace. Remember I said the word for joy is kara. The word for grace is charis. They are closely related. And when you think about joy, it's related to grace in my life. The thing that brings joy into my life is the grace of God. Let me make a very important distinction here. Because you have to understand this. You get joy because of what you know about God. So joy is a state of mind. It's a state of what I know about God. That's why some people, just yesterday, we learned that a good friend of ours has cancer. It's quite amazing how some people can get that news and not come absolutely unglued. And the reason is they know something about God that a lot of other people don't know. They know that God is their God. He is in charge. He never makes any mistakes. So your joy comes because of what you know about God. Here's the distinction. Happiness comes because of your circumstances. See, 
You put me in the middle of Disneyland, and I'm happy. There's no way to avoid it. I'm going to be a happy camper in the middle of Disneyland. But happiness has nothing to do with my joy. And the reason I make this distinction with you is because a lot of us Christians confuse those two. We think that because we are going through a circumstance that doesn't make us happy, that God isn't who he says he is. But the fact is, we can still have the joy that Paul talks about because God is, in fact, who he says he is, and we can maintain that and know that. So we must live each day by grace. Legalism is substituting rules and regulations for my relationship with Christ. Grace is in place of legalism. Grace has had an incredible impact on my life because I was one of those kids who came to know Christ and was excited and then lost my joy and then walked away from Christ for a while. My bitterness came back and my anger came back. Listen, grace is the place where a man with a sordid past can sit down alongside of a man with a promising future and nobody, not even God, can tell them apart. And that's what grace does for us. And that's how we need to walk through life. Not trying to determine whether we are keeping the right rules or not. We need to focus on grace. You know why? Because grace helps us focus on what God does. Legalism makes us focus on what we do. And what we want to focus on is what God does. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, how you can know when you are falling into the trap of legalism. Avoiding the trap of legalism. I want to give you several things. Here's the first one. You know you're falling into the trap of legalism when you begin to trust in rituals. Now, Paul uses his own life as an illustration here. And Paul was the legalistic superstar. He was the one who could do legalism better than anybody else. You begin to trust in rituals. He says he was circumcised on the eighth day. That was a ritual that every Jew knew he had to have to have a relationship with God. Uh, we, We Christians sometimes have our rituals, don't we? Sometimes uh, a younger guy comes in and he says, we want to do things a little differently. But we say, no, no, we can't do it that way because I have this ritual and I've got to do it the other way. And we need to be careful of rituals. The second thing is, you begin to trust in race. Paul says, he was of the nation Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul said, I know I have a relationship with God because of my heritage. And I say, you cannot come to know Christ. You can't get saved by uh, osmosis. You see... 
A lot of us would say, I go to church because my parents went to church. I go to that church because my parents went to that church. I'm a Christian because my parents were a Christian. No, this is something you have got to do. There comes a point at which you must come face to face with God. And you have to say, I'm either going to get saved or I'm not going to get saved. And then the next one is, you begin to trust in religion. Paul said, I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Religion is when man tries to reach God. And I don't know whether you realize it or not, but every people on the planet worship something. Doesn't matter where you go. Doesn't matter how, how dark the area is. Doesn't matter how backwards the people are. They worship something or somebody. Because religion is always man's attempt to reach God. Jesus Christ is God's way of reaching man. And he does that free of charge, except for what Jesus suffered. And the next one is, you begin to trust in rules. As to the law, Paul says, he was a Pharisee. And he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. In the Old Testament, they had the Ten Commandments. They also had 619 other laws. And the Pharisees were meticulous about obeying these laws. They even wrote another book, the the Mishnah, to interpret all of those laws and interpret how you obey those laws. For instance, a Pharisee would never reach under a chicken to take out an egg on Shabbat, on the Sabbath, because that would be work. See, the Pharisee would never swat a mosquito on the Sabbath because that would mean work. Ladies, listen to this. You could never look in a mirror on the Sabbath. None of you could put makeup on on the Sabbath. So us husbands, I know, would only see you six days a week. Because the Pharisees determined, if you looked in a mirror, you might see a pimple you have to pinch, and that would be work. The Pharisees wouldn't allow it. They had this thing down to a T, no pun intended. And as a result, the Apostle Paul was one of those guys, and, and, and he's going to mention something in just a minute that I think is absolutely phenomenal. Next, he says, you begin to trust in reputation. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, that's the best thing you could have been from a Pharisaic point of view. As to the righteousness which is in the law, Paul was blameless. Man, could he possibly say that he was blameless with regard to the law, did he have the nerve to be able to say such a thing? But that's what he believed. And that's that was his reputation. His reputation was that he would uh, persecute the church and that he was blameless when it came to the law. And we do a lot of good things. We go to church. Uh, people are sometimes known because they start churches 
Sometimes they're known because they build church buildings. Sometimes they're known because they pray. Sometimes they're known because of how much money they give. But none of that gets you any points with God. There's only one way, and that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ plus nothing. So the first thing is resist legalistic attitudes. The second thing is reevaluate your activities. Reevaluate your activities. Sometimes I think Christians look for joy and even happiness in all the wrong places. Um, so Paul says now in verses 7 and 8, but whatever things, and I call this passage Paul's profit and loss statement. He, he, he uses the word profit in this translation, gain. He used that word only once. He uses the word loss three times. That's a pretty poor profit and loss statement, I think. So Paul says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ my Lord, knowing Christ my Lord, of whom I have suffered the loss of all things, loss of all things, and count them to be rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Circle the word rubbish, because no translation gives that word its due. And I can't either, because if I do, you'd probably get offended and maybe even fire me. This word is the worst kind of stinky thing you can imagine. It's dung. And there's other words for that. But these guys are polite to us by using a word like rubbish. And Paul says all of those things that we mentioned earlier, all of those things fall into that category. They are all lost for Christ. Uh, you have to know what is important. Here's an important principle. You can't have it all. You have to decide what your priorities are. And after all of these years of being involved with people, working with them, ministering to them, counseling them, I conclude that the number one reason that people can't hold on to their joy within Christianity is the fact that they have misplaced priorities. And the Apostle Paul is talking about, in these verses, priorities. You have to keep your priorities in perspective. You can't have it all. You have to give up something to get something. You and, and here's the thing. Once you decide what you are going to do, you are in essence by nature of that deciding what you are not going to do. And that's not legalism. It's just simple fact. So we have to keep our priorities in perspective and not misplace them. It was Jim Elliott who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep 
for that which he cannot lose. And that's the kind of thinking we have to have. We have to know what our priorities are in Christ. And in so doing, we reevaluate our activities. And I might add that if you have more than four priorities, you have too many. In fact, if you have more than four priorities, you probably don't have any priorities. Our first priority needs to be to know Jesus. Here's the last thing. Refocus your ambitions. Refocus your ambitions. This is a little related to the former one. He talks to us in verse 10. And he says, that I may know him. Circle the word know. It's the same word Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 17, verse 3, where he said, Here is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So the way we come to God is to know him. And the deeper we know him, the deeper the iceberg goes into the ocean and the less we will move with every wind of doctrine. This word means a personal, intimate, experiential knowledge of God. When is the last time you experienced God? So he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. So we have to get to know Jesus better and better. Get to know him better and better. See, I think too many Christians stay too close to where they got into this thing that we call Christianity. We, we stay too close there. We don't move further. We don't get to know God better. And God wants us to know him better. And that's how we go through cancer. That's how we go through the stresses of life. That's how we go through the death of a spouse or the death of a child. I remember Dr. Ron Allen saying to me one day, he said, it's just, there's just something wrong when a child dies before the parent. But joy comes into our lives because we know God. And the deeper we know God, the better we cope with every piece of life that comes to us. There's a book on the market. Um, I guess it's still on the market. Some of you old folks will know it. Some of you young folks will have to find it. It's by A.W. Tozer. It's entitled, The Knowledge of the Holy. It may be, outside of the Bible, my favorite book on the planet. I read it once a year, whether I need it or not. I've never found a year when I didn't need it. And like the Bible, there's never been something that I haven't learned by reading A.W. Tozer's book about who God is. And the better you come to know God, the better you cope, the less chance you have of losing your joy. So how do you get to know God? How do you get to know Christ in a personal way? Let me give you three simple ways. The first one is time. Notice what I say there. It is difficult, if not impossible, to develop a relationship in a crowd. 
You need to give God time. Uh, you need to discover who God is. You know, my I, I have a definition of marriage um, that I've never read anyplace else. My definition of marriage is that marriage is a lifetime of discovery. It is a lifetime of discovery. You know why? Because when God creates people, he creates them complicated. He creates them with so many idiosyncrasies that we can never... I'm married to Carolyn, by the way, I might add, today, 18,304 days. But if I were married to her for two lifetimes, I would never fully discover who this woman is. I like to teach people how to discover each other. When a young person is going to get married, they have to say, I'm going to spend my life discovering who this person is that God has given to me. Every once in a while, Carolyn will say something or do something, and after all of these years, I say, whoa, where did that come from? She says, it's always been there. You just didn't know it. Marriage is a life. Listen, your relationship to God is a lifetime of discovery. It is a lifetime of getting to know God better and better. And that takes time. You can't do that overnight. And you can't do it in a crowd. The second thing is talk. You see what I say there? Much prayer, much joy. Little prayer, little joy. No prayer, no joy. A relationship demands and requires communication. Remember I told you how Carolyn and I spend the whole evening together just trying to talk to each other and tell each other what we're feeling inside and what's going on in us and all. That has to happen between you and God. You have to talk to God, and God has to be able to talk to you. He does that through his word, and he does that uh, uh, when you are in prayer with him. I was studying last week, and suddenly I realized Paul says in 2 Corinthians, he said, my suffering was for your benefit. What? Yes, God allowed me to suffer so that you would benefit from it. You know, sometimes when we are suffering, our thinking is only about ourselves. We don't ever get our mind off of ourselves. And as a result, we forget that God may be going to teach somebody else something out of this. And the third thing is trust. You can only learn to trust God. You can only learn that God is reliable through experience. Every relationship is built on trust. And in a marriage, the more you trust each other, the better and stronger the relationship will be. Every relationship 
is built on trust, and God says, I want you to trust me. Carolyn and I, over the years, have had many opportunities to trust God. I remember one time in in our early part of our marriage, I was working and hurt my back, and I couldn't work for a while. Carolyn did part-time work, but we didn't have enough money. We couldn't pay the rent. Fortunately, her parents owned the house. Um, uh, we couldn't eat very well. Um, I remember for a week, um, all we had was sweet potatoes and corn. And our little girl, who was about three at the time, was kind of scratching her head, saying, what's going on here? Where's the beef? When I did go back to work, I went back to work as the custodian for Memorial Baptist Church in Fresno, California, where Don Baker was the pastor who became my mentor. And uh, not long, and and we were thinking, we were saying every day, God, what are we going to eat today? God, we're trusting you. And God gave us something to eat every day. Uh, It was like manna, though. Sometimes... You know, we got tired of it and sweet potatoes and corn. One day I was sweeping the floor in this big room at Memorial Baptist Church. And there was a business card on the floor. You know, one about like this. And that push broom kept going over the business card. You know, it kept doing it. I wanted to kill that card. Uh, After a little while, I got frustrated enough, and I reached down and picked up the card, and there was a picture on it like this one. And in that picture was a a single missionary woman whom I've never met and never will meet. She's probably dead by now. I didn't know her. The name didn't ring a bell. But there was only one other thing on the front of that card, and it was Jeremiah 32:27. Jeremiah was whining a little bit. You know, like you do and I do sometimes. And God, with a bit of sarcasm, says to Jeremiah, Behold, and the first right in front of that said, The Lord God spoke to Jeremiah. And 32 says, Behold, I am Yahweh, the God of all flesh. And then with a little bit of sarcasm, he says, Is there anything too hard for me? And I got pumped. I said, God's going to do it. God's going to take care of it. I put the card in my pocket. I got on my little motorbike. I drove home. I took the card in to Carolyn. I said, look, honey, what God gave me, he's going to take care of us. And she looked at it, and she got a little pumped. But not a whole lot. It was Wednesday. And Wednesday night I was standing in the back parking lot, leaning against the church, waiting for the people to get out of prayer meeting. Uh, They're gabbing the way these Christians do, you know. And and, uh, a guy walks across the parking lot and he says, Rich, you know that I work for Chef Boyardee. I said, yeah. He said, well, I've got a few cans of food in the car. Do you know anybody could use them? Well, by that time, I had lost all my pride. 
and Carolyn's too. And so I said, yeah, Carolyn and I will take it. We're in a little bit hard up right now. He said, okay. I said, I'll come over and get it. He said, no, I'll bring it over to your car. So he drove his car over to my car, and he loaded into the back seat of my car case after case after case after case of Chef Boyardee. And when that was done, he filled the trunk. Not one can had a label on it. (laughs) With tears in my eyes, I drove home. I pulled in the garage. I said, honey, come here. I want to show you something. I took her out to the car and opened up the back door. And she began to weep. She began to cry like she is right now. Uh, she began to cry, and uh, she said, I didn't trust enough. I said, well, that's not all. Come on and out, oh, over to the trunk. And I opened up the trunk, and there it was as full as it could be with labelless Chef Boyardee canned food. And we ate it, and we ate it, and we never knew what we were getting. It was... It was like the manna, remember, then they, when they said, what is this, God? <laughs> and two years later, when we moved to Oregon to go to seminary, we still moved about three cases of that Chef Boyardee food. And you say, how do you learn to trust God? That's how you learn. And what God did for us in the beginning of ministry, and that's only one illustration. I can tell you other times when I was confident that God did it and nobody else could. But God did it. So, have you lost your joy? Has your Christian life become a little routine? Which of these three joy killers is responsible? Take a moment, just before you go to communion, and check one of them. Legalism, your activities, or your ambitions. What is it? And maybe it's just trusting God that you need to learn to do. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to Jeremiah. And your word to Jeremiah is the same that you give to us. You give us grace. And we say, oh God, to be like you. We say we give all just to know you better. We recognize that it's all about Jesus. So, Father, today we come to communion. We share that symbol of the broken body and the shed blood 
with a fresh reminder that this is the one and only way that this relationship grows. May we know you better. May we love you more. And may we be a people who will contribute the time and the talk and the trust to get to know you better. And we'll thank you in Jesus' sweet name. Amen.